Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I am your host, David Michael. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 44. This is a solo show, so Trip and Tony are once again taking the day off because instead of recording on Saturday, Trip was slacking and throwing a barbecue. So since we didn't get together to record, and I can't say anything, I went to the barbecue too. <laughs> no, we all had a great time, and thanks to Trip for throwing that great little cookout. I got to see a lot of good people and have good times, listen to some good tunes. Not a bad way to spend the weekend. Before we get into our main topics, I would like to take a moment to address a few comments from around various social media channels for Passionate DJ. Coming from SoundCloud, Drew Whited, who was the uh, partner in crime with uh, last week's episode uh, in cahoots with Tony DeSero. They used to DJ as Jedi and Guru, and he, uh, Tony told a story about his third track on the Pick 3 episode, where they ran into Funk Function and gave him a ride somewhere, having a conversation with him in the car, that whole cool story that ended last week's show. So Drew got on there and said that he had chills all over, and he said he remembers it identically the same. Such a great and vivid memory. Shout out to Drew. Thanks for listening, buddy, and uh, glad that you could share in that moment and on that episode. I uh, got a quick comment on Facebook from Mo Dingo. Good to hear from you again. You hadn't had an opportunity to play on a large enough scale where this was an issue. Now you were talking about... Uh, in response to episode 41, which was our controllers too amateur for the big room. And he said, so for those of us not quite on that level, how does one get exposure to that kind of gear if we don't own it? So in other words, if you don't want to or can't make the investment for five or $6,000 or however much the cost of entry to getting the full Pioneer rig is, how do you get exposure to that stuff and know how to play on it so that when you encounter it in the wild, you can know what to do. Well, the cool thing about the Pioneer approach is it uses Rekordbox, and Rekordbox is fairly universal across several, de- you know, their entire lineup, and everything that's coming out nowadays by Pioneer DJ supports Rekordbox, so you use Rekordbox to prep your library, and then you can use that to play on just about any Pioneer gear that is out now, so that could be a different CDJ that's not, you know, not maybe the 2000 Nexus, but could be a used 2000s. It could be CDJ 900s. It could be, uh, I think, CDJ 350s even. Or you could go, or the XDJ, which is the version that doesn't have an actual CD drive. You could use their controllers. You could use the, uh, in fact, the DDJ RB and DDJ RR that we talk about in this episode right here. Uh, would be perfectly valid ways to be able to do this on a controller. So the only thing that, you know, if you were to encounter an actual full Nexus setup, uh, you would be fairly familiar with where you're at. There might be more functions and stuff on the mixer itself and a little more going on, or maybe a few buttons or, you know, in slightly different places, but you're going to generally know how everything works. That should translate. It's kind of the whole idea of Rekordbox. That's why it exists so that you could do this so you don't have to invest in that you know huge setup trip for example has a ddj sz which is about as expensive as you can get as far as controllers go but still is way cheaper than you know two nexus 2000s and a djm mixer so 
he has that. He can use it at home. It pretty much translates exactly to the standard club setup. So you could either, you know, whether you're using an actual record box DJ uh, library, you know, where you're connecting your laptop and using it as your DJ software like Tractor Serato, you can do that with other Pioneer, you know, supported Pioneer gear. Or you can export, you know, this is the more traditional way, you can export your library or whatever to a USB key or something like that. And then just plug it into CDJs and take it out and plug it into your controller at home or and whatever. And it should just translate across the board. So all that to say, if you don't have access directly to the CDJs, then get and, and you want access to that to know how that workflow is, then you might consider investing in a record box controller or a slightly cheaper CDJ setup. So that's my recommendation there. Thanks for writing in again, Mo. Good to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, that doesn't mean that you should feel obligated to invest in a Pioneer setup so that it will translate to the club. In general, on a local level, you're going to be able to figure out how to use either whatever you've got or whatever uh, the powers that be want you to use. So in my opinion, if you get to that point where it's becoming a problem, then let's cross that bridge when you get to it. But that doesn't mean that it should affect your purchasing decisions or your software choice. So if you're already using Serato or Tractor or Virtual DJ or something like that, I'm not trying to convince you to stop using it is what I'm saying. Uh, but to answer your question, that's how you can get access to a Pioneer setup for cheaper. So just wanted to clarify that. Okay, so what's in store for the show today? So, you know, some episodes of Passionate DJ are about helping each other become better DJs, sort of how-to episodes or advice episodes. Some of them are more opinion episodes, opinion pieces. Some of them are just for fun, kind of like last week where we were just kind of bringing in different tracks that we thought were special or cool for some reason or another. And some are more industry-related, you know, news and stuff like that. And that's what today's episode is about. This is all going to be about kind of current happenings in the DJ realm. So I have in front of me a list of headlines. And I also have them on my computer, but I wrote them down because I always wanted to do that. You know, like all the cool radio guys always got to shake the piece of paper and you could hear it in the microphone. I feel like we're you're right here in the studio with me. All right, here we go. So, recently announced was the new Play Differently mixer. So this is a new DJ mixer that's being touted by Richie Houghton. It's the Model 1. Play Differently, that's P-L-A-Y in all caps, and then Differently. So it's all one word, Play Differently. Um, and so this is a new mixer that's uh, really pretty fancy and that uh, you know Richie's been working on, and I guess is touring with the prototype now and doing various uh, tech demos and stuff. So I've got the story from DJ Tech Tools. It says, Dedicated fans have carefully been watching for every chance to see the new Richie Houghton uh, slash Andy Rigby Jones mixer collaboration. But finally, the 100% analog, play differently, Model 1 mixer has been publicly announced. Watch DJ Tech Tools' world-exclusive explanation, and so they put a demo video in here, and I'll link to this, of course, in the show notes. But some of the key features of this new mixer. So it's, you know, got a typical mixer design that you're pretty familiar with, with the, the faders at the bottom. There is no cross fader, uh, but the faders at the bottom, EQs in the middle, you know, your kind of typical layout. 
Uh, it says, from a gl quick glance, most DJs would notice a few obvious, unique things. No crossfader. Instead, there's six faders with studio-style caps. And there's a few more knobs on each channel than a simple gain in e EQ. So, yes, it is a six-channel mixer. This is a fully analog mixer built in the UK, and it has an impressive feature set. Here's an overview of the most notable. So, six stereo channels. It's got contour filters, so it's individual low-Q low pass filter and high pass filter for each channel. So I say when I say low Q, I'm talking about the letter capital letter Q. So what that's basically your your resonance for the filter. So they they're saying there's a low pass and high pass on each channel with a low uh, resonance. So it's designed not to add color to the sound as it sweeps across the frequency range. Um, it's so in <clears throat> in a lot of say like a pioneer uh, DJM filter with the uh, color effects it has that really um, kind of harsh effecty sound on the filter this is uh, on this mixer it doesn't have so much of that effect and it's more uh, meant to be subtle and to be used as a sound sculpting tool there's also a master filter so this one is separate from the filter that's on the individual channels uh, and you can assign any of those channels to the master filter. So this is similar to the way that your typical zone filter works from Allen and Heath. Uh, there are two stereo sends and returns, two cues. So this is a really cool feature that I, I really dig about this mixer. It's specifically designed for two DJs to use the mixer concurrently. Uh, so there are two completely separate cue systems for previewing audio. So not only can you plug in two sets of headphones, but you can each... Uh, monitor different signals in those headphones. So if you're tagging with somebody, you want to be previewing or queuing up your tracks while they're playing and not kind of getting in each other's way, you can do that using the same mixer. You don't have to do any daisy chaining now. So that's a, a pretty cool new feature, this mixer. has a Sculpt EQ. They describe it as a semi-parametric semi swept bell filter. And it consists of two controls, frequency, which sets the center frequency, and then a cut and boost, which adjusts the gain uh, at that frequency. So it's your, your basic uh, EQ, but it's parametric. So basically you, can, you have some control over the frequency range that you are adjusting. So rather than just having a static low, mid, and high EQ, you still have those, but you can adjust what the center frequency of the low or the mid or the high EQ is. So maybe you want your high EQ to affect a little bit higher overall. You can adjust that center point. See, there's a master EQ as well. There's a booth out EQ, so you can actually adjust the EQ that's going straight to your booth output, which is kind of interesting. A drive control, so this is uh, literally like an overdrive. This is uh, an input on each mixer, or excuse me, each input on the mixer has a drive knob that allows you to adjust the level at which the channel preamplifier clips the input signal, thus creating harmonic distortion as an effect. So, you know, some of you might be kind of cringing. Whoa, whoa, whoa why, why would I want to overdrive a signal into clipping? Well, remember, this is a fully analog mixer. And back before uh, digital mixing and, dig you know, digital was the thing, analog equipment, people would use saturation and and clipping or overdriving as an effect because a saturated tape kind of signal can kind of have a pleasing effect to, to some people it can have a uh, a warming if you will 
type effect on the sound. It's not the harsh kind of digital clipping that you might get out of digital gear. So they actually take this and say, hey, maybe you want to add some analog distortion. Here you go. You can do it on a per channel basis. Let's see. There's lots of lots and lots of inputs and outputs. There's a, a record out that's a three and a half millimeter. So it's like a, a small phono, you know, headphones jack. Uh, right on the top of the mixer by the VU meters. There's XLR and quarter-inch master out. There's a quarter-inch booth out. Two pairs of quarter-inch um, auxiliary outputs. Two pairs of returns. Um, and then there's uh, two there's two serial ports. So they're D-sub, if you know what that is. They're, they're Tascam DB25. So they kind of look like old... Some of your you younger listeners might not even know what this is. But if you remember the older printers that had parallel cables... They kind of look like that. They're big, wide, you know, multi 25-pin cables. It allows you to send multiple channels to and from high-end sound cars. So th- I'm assuming that has to do with connecting to, like, Pro Tools rigs or something like that. And then there's six RCA inputs. Three of them can be switched to phono, so you can have up to three analog signals, like turntables. And then there's actually mixer linking ports. So this is pretty neat. You can link together multiple Model 1 mixers, whether you want to do that because you're connecting multiple performers or you want more than six channels for some reason. It will link all the mixers together, and when they're linked, the mixers share one set of outputs, and the queue systems work across all those mixers. So you could have a 12 or 24 channel version of the same mixer, essentially. So kind of interesting. Okay, so here's the kicker. The price is uh, going to be released at 2,500 euros, so or uh, pounds rather. So that works out to be about 36.50 US dollars. So this is a big, pricey, expensive, high-end mixer, and it it kind of has me wondering, like, what is the target market for? this particular mixer because it's it it seems to be a little much for a club installation anywhere other than you know a a pretty major club Uh, it's going to be overpriced for most home users and it's it's a standard layout but there's a lot more happening on top of the board than is on you know a, a typical you know pioneer mixer or whatever if you're not familiar with it so it's it might be intimidating for people to just encounter. It's not quite the same as the, the quote, industry standard. So it's a really nice piece, and I really like it. And, um, you know, you can watch the the demo video with Richie Hotness on YouTube. And he does a pretty good job kind of demonstrating why this mixer sounds so good, and it really does. I mean, he has a couple of loops going and just kind of affects them in different ways that are intentionally very obvious but you can kind of hear the the way that the eq and the filters are affecting the sound and it's just a really good sounding piece but it's you know thirty seven hundred dollars that's just it's getting steeper and steeper all the time to get these fancier toys so it's it is a beautiful piece and it does sound good and so we'll see how it goes what's something we'll be keeping an eye on in the future now while we're nerding out over hardware Pioneer DJ launches the DDJ-RR and DDJ-RB controllers for Recordbox DJ. This story comes in courtesy of Digital DJ Tips. They're calling it the refresher, the upgrade to the DDJ-SR and SB2. So here's the story. Pioneer DJ just announced two new Recordbox DJ controllers, the DDJ-RR and the DDJ-RB. 
While both are essentially 2016 refreshes to existing controllers by Pioneer DJ, there are some nice upgrades here apart from the ability to use them natively with the company's Recordbox DJ software. The DDJ-RR is the first update to Pioneer DJ's DDJ-SR two-channel controller, and it brings the model straight into 2016 by adding slightly larger jog wheels than its predecessor, and the jogs now come with an illuminated center status ring, and you can customize the behavior within Rekordbox. So it's uh, kind of like on the CDJs where you've got that center ring that gives you some, some visual feedback. There's some version of that on this new controller that is customizable. It's got a pair of XLR master outputs now, and uh, also a pair of RCA master outs, a pair of quarter-inch booth outs. So there's a lot more connectivity on this version of the, uh, the SR, the RR. Uh, Welcome Edition, previously available only on more expensive models like the DDJ-SX and SZ, is the Needle Search. So it's got the, the touch strip, which lets you jump to parts of a track that you've got loaded. The sequencer buttons for Recordbox DJ and the backlit RGB pads also make their way onto the RR. Now the RB is an update to last year's DDJ SB2 and it ups the number of performance pads from 4 to 8. And there are now dedicated Q and play buttons. Both controllers also come with PC master output feature that's present in Recordbox DJ. So this is kind of interesting. You can assign the master output to you know your laptop speakers or whatever for when you don't have an external pair of speakers connected and you can still monitor headphone cues on the uh, the controller itself so you can actually uh, output to a separate audio device than the DDJ so that's kind of interesting sequence call is a new feature uh, which lets you load a sequence that you've stored directly from the pads themselves the DDJ-RR will retail for $699 and the RB for $249. DJWorks.com, that's DJWorks with an X.com, has the scoop on the next topic, which reads, Hashtag RealDJing takes hit as controller user wins DMC heat. The battle scene has been the fiercest defender of the turntable and vinyl faith for the longest time. But the purest walls of hashtag real DJing began to fall when DVS became a standard fixture in the DMC battles. And when the new online battle allowed just about any technology to be used, a few DJs began to experiment and to push the boundaries of what had previously been allowed in battle sets. But it would appear that the boundaries have been pushed beyond those of accepted real DJing, and a DJ not using vinyl or turntables has won a DMC battle. The Abbott from New Zealand put out a cracking routine and has been announced as a winner of round four of the online battle. Before you spit your dummies out, watch the set and then comment. For what I'm watching is not a stereotypical controllerist set, but is very much a modern turntable set done on a Pioneer DDJSZ. It'd certainly be easy enough to translate to turntables should the Abbott win and appear at the world final. As I understand it, the entries are all voted for by the public and then the top ten are judged by DMC champions. The public vote put this set at number four, which is still a good result, but it's enlightening to see how the judges voted. They're all what many would consider to be real DJs in the spirit of the hashtag, but they've taken a very progressive outlook on the set and feel that it's about the music and the technique, and not the technology or format that matters. So, 
this is pretty interesting, and I gave this set a listen. You can watch the video on YouTube, and I'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes as well. Uh, PassionateDJ.com forward slash uh, 44 in this case. So that, And that's the case for all show notes, by the way. You can go to PassionateDJ.com forward slash and the episode number. I, I listened to the set, and uh, I thought it was good. I, I mean, I, I, I wasn't wowed by the set. But and, and I, I say that I say that as as somebody who is not a great turntablist or scratch DJ, right? Like I'm I'm still really learning in that area. It, but it's one of those routines where there's a lot of beat juggling, and beat juggling is something that I'm I'm just super super picky about uh, because it's very very hard to get that kind of stuff really on beat, and if it's not specifically on beat, it kind of grates on me. And it was kind of one of those, but. There was something about the set, and, and, and I don't mean that to, to speak ill of the guy. I mean, it was a great, you know, routine, and there was a lot to it. And it, it was cool to watch because he is using this SZ as if they were a pair of turntables. And what I mean by that is it's, it's not like he's the first DJ to, you know, do a, a DJ routine on a controller and do all kinds of cool stuff with it. But the style of his routine is very much like a turntable set so he's doing spin downs and spin backs and beat juggling and all these things really the only the only thing that that differentiates it from a typical turntable set is the um cue points so he's using cue points uh, which you kind of have to so it's pretty interesting to watch. It's pretty cool. Go ahead and hit the show notes and you can check that out. But it's it says a lot about the state of battling in DMC and competition and the scene in general that uh, people are now willing to accept an entry like that to the point that it's actually voted as a winner of a particular heat. So uh, good luck to the Abbott and hopefully he does well and keeps up the good work. Next up on my handy cheat sheet. Music streaming sites are helping to drive sales of vinyl, new research suggests. This is courtesy of Mark Savage of BBC.com. Half of consumers say that they listened to an album online before buying a vinyl copy, according to an ICM poll shared exclusively with the BBC. The behavior is more common for people who use ad-funded services such as SoundCloud or YouTube, suggesting free music can drive real-world sales. But 48% of people who bought vinyl last month admit that they've yet to play it. 7% of those surveyed say that they do not even own a turntable. They have a little graphic here, and it says people who buy vinyl. 7% have no turntable. 41% have a turntable but don't use it. 52% have a turntable that they use. I have vinyls, and that's a direct quote. I have vinyls in my room, but it's more for decor. I don't actually play them. Jordan, a student in Manchester, told BBC News. It gives me the old-school vibe. That's what vinyl is all about, he added. Others say that they buy records to support their favorite artists, while 50% of consumers identify themselves as, quote, collectors. It's so easy to listen to music now on YouTube or Spotify. I think we're yearning for the times of our parents when you had to go out of your way to buy a song, says student Duncan Willis. It's really nice to have an object that you can hold and physically play, agrees Helena, an 18-year-old from Kingston, who has started using her father's old record player. I also think it's important to support artists financially if you can. I like it if someone puts effort into making a release look special. 
they have another graphic here that shows the percentage uh, of or the, the sort of demographics of vinyl buyers the 18 to 24 bracket is 15 about 16 percent the 25 to 34 is the biggest uh, at uh, about 33 percent and then it's sort of a slow decline from there so 25 to 34 uh, 34 year olds are buying up all the wax the resurgence in vinyl during a period of declining sales has been one of the music industry's more surprising success stories. In 2014, 2.1 million LPs were purchased by music fans as demand increased for an eighth successive year, climbing to six, or climbing 64% to a 21-year high. Official charts company figures suggest the rise has continued in 2016, with 637,056 records sold in the first three months of the year, accounting for almost 3% of the UK music market. The vinyl revival has been spurred by Record Store Day, which started nine years ago, supporting independent music retailers. But the ICM Unlimited research shows that the majority of music, 73%, is now bought online, with Amazon emerging as the top retailer, accounting for 27% of all sales. Apple's iTunes Store is next with an 18% market share, followed by supermarkets at 10%, and high street record stores at 7%. Now you'll recall a while back we were talking about the uh, the new Techniques SL1200 and the uh, Special Edition being re-released this year. According to factmag.com, that's F-A-C-T-M-A-G.com, the initial run of new Technics SL1200 turntables sold out in less than 30 minutes. Japanese buyers snap up the new turntable despite its high price tag. If you've been clamoring for one of these new limited edition Technics SL1200 turntables, bad news. The initial Japanese run of 300 units sold out in 30 minutes. The first batch of the 50th anniversary edition SL1200GAE model sold out in under an hour yesterday, April 12th, despite costing 356,000 yen, so about $3,300 each. There will be another 900 of the limited edition model manufactured for the international market, but there's no indication as to when or where they'll be sold. Uh, If you can wait, a non-limited model is expected to arrive at the end of 2016. The reborn SL1200 was formally announced in January, but quickly attracted criticism for its huge price tag. The company says that they're considering a more affordable model, but it's unclear when or if it will come to market. And this is something that's been really kind of confusing ever since these new turntables were, were announced by Panasonic and Techniques. They describe the SL1200, and then they describe the SL1200GAE, which is supposed to be a sort of special edition limited run version um, that I'm assuming is notably more expensive than the base model. But then they've also gone on record as saying that the new turntables are priced so high because they had to uh, have all these new startup costs of you know restarting production on these turntables whereas before they had been manufacturing them for years and years and years on equipment that was still working and yada yada they claimed that a lot of the old equipment that was used to make the original 1200s were either destroyed or damaged and that this time around that they were forced to start from the beginning so anyways all that to say I, i'm i'm still confused as to whether there's going to be a cheaper version of this turntable that is going to be full production that doesn't cost, you know, $3,300. It seems that there is, but 
what what are the differences between that and this cheaper model that they reference in this article it's just really convoluted that the, the way that these terms are getting thrown around and nobody seems to really specify when they're talking about the base 1200 when they're talking about the special edition and whether or not they're talking about some other cheap version so it's all kind of confusing but really the point of the the moral of the story here is that um Techniques can apparently charge whatever they want because they have no problem selling it in a limited market in a single country and selling them out in 30 minutes at the price of their choice. Now before we move on to our next headline here on the list, those of you who've been listening for a while, you've been hearing us do these sort of what we call calls to action at the end of episodes if you listen all the way through. Uh, where we give you something, a suggestion of something to do, like uh, go like a certain page or something to do to help us out, leave a, a review on iTunes and that sort of thing. Uh, we've been doing them at the end, but this time um, I'm experimenting and tossing one right in the middle. So uh, if you don't mind, this week what I'm asking you to do is leave a voicemail. If you're interested at all in helping us out, this would be a great way to do it. You can go to passionatedj.com. There's just a button there that says leave voicemail. You can click it. It won't even take you away from the page. It'll pop up right there, a little widget. You can use uh, whatever microphone you've got or your smartphone or, or webcam or iPad or whatever. Leave a voicemail. And if you don't have a question, which is what we usually say, ask us a question on voicemail. We also would love to hear your comments, um, You know, any anything that you want to, to leave as a message. So if you don't know what to leave but you would like to interact with the show, Go ahead and leave a voicemail and let us know what you thought about last week's episode. That was the pick three episode where me, Tony, and Trip each brought in three tracks and we played them on the show and talked about them a little bit. Uh, we would really like to know what you thought about that show because we're interested in doing more of them because we personally had fun doing it and we've received positive feedback locally from people who that we know have heard it and we've talked to and they said they really liked it and we're talking about doing more of those so go to passionatedj.com click leave a voicemail tell us what you thought about the pick three show and maybe leave a track of your own that you if you had the opportunity to do a similar kind of show what song would you bring in leave it we'd love to hear it now in previous episodes we've spoken a lot about the whole uh, SFX, Robert Sillerman thing, where the big EDM conglomerate has filed for bankruptcy and kind of collapsed in on itself in a financial manner. Now, this company happens to be the owner of Beatport, and so there had been a lot of speculation about the future of Beatport and so on, and uh, as far as we can tell, the future of Beatport is fine, but there has been an auction for Beatport assets. Back in March, it was announced that SFX would be auctioning off Beatport due to their recent bankruptcy filing and not being able to invest in the company moving forward. This article comes in courtesy of Magnetic Mag. The final day for bids to be submitted was supposed to be April 28th, with the auction taking place on May 3rd. Now the auction has been delayed due to prospected investors needing more time to finalize their bids. Beatport told Billboard of the situation via statement. At the request of interested parties who require more time to finalize their bids, we have agreed to reschedule the Beatport sale hearing to the next available court date on May 26th. A new auction date will be announced once determined. Whether this is good or bad news remains to be seen. 
In other news, the SFX bankruptcy judge allocated $15 million to pay artist booking fees for the company's upcoming festivals. We'll have more information on this developing story as it surfaces. Drug researchers are throwing a fundraiser to purchase one kilo of MDMA, that's ecstasy for the uninitiated. Using MDMA to treat psychological illnesses has long been debated, but a group of researchers are looking to conduct more clinical trials after a positive initial study. This story comes in courtesy of Magnetic Mag. A group of researchers specializing in psychedelic drugs are throwing a fundraiser with the main goal of purchasing one kilo of MDMA, the pure form of ecstasy. Members of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, in Canada are holding a dinner fundraiser that will take place on April 28th, with an art fundraiser to follow on May 19th. They're looking to conduct more research on how MDMA can be used to treat psychological illnesses like PTSD, but need to pay for the next round of clinical trials along with laboratory costs for producing the substance. Mark Hayden, the director of MAPS Canada, says PTSD is a very hard illness to treat. With only 25% effectiveness when using traditional methods, but when using MDMA, we are demonstrating 82% effectiveness in one month. The previous clinical trials conducted by MAPS Canada consisted of 100 individuals suffering from PTSD and resulted in, quote, very powerful therapy. Using MDMA to treat PTSD allows the patient to address their emotions like terror and feeling anxious, which often halts the healing process. This new study is very promising, but more research still needs to be done. With that being said, they're claiming MDMA psychotherapy could be legal within five years. This is kind of an interesting story because ecstasy or MDMA was initially brought to everyone's attention because it was a hopeful treatment for things like PTSD and severe anxiety and and those types of afflictions. And it seems that right about the time of the end of the rave era and the rave act and all the crackdowns on club drugs and and so on that it really halted all this research and this is something that i've been watching people talk about for years and years um, which is really uh really disappointing because mdma like they say is very uh, shown a lot of promise for being able to treat some pretty severe and debilitating afflictions. So uh, hopefully that goes well and they're able to have some useful research come out of a party drug. Now speaking to the uh, five-year comment, they have a link to another article uh, from October on Magnetic Mag, and they say in an interview, Rick Doblin, executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, revealed that psychotherapy with MDMA could be legal sooner than you think. It's been widely discussed that MDMA could possibly have some beneficial properties if taken in small and moderate doses. If the FDA approves, the drug, when combined with the right therapies, would be used to treat those suffering from depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorders. Doblin says the FDA could approve this kind of treatment as early as 2021. To be clear, Doblin emphasizes that the treatment is not the drug by itself. He states, it's not just the MDMA. This provides a lot of extra support and safety through the whole process. Meaning, the therapy could be taxing on the mind, and a small dose of MDMA would ease the process of dealing with the mental issues. Last week, Magnetic Mag published the findings of a research study that concluded that high doses of MDMA caused an increased level of stress. The key with that study were the, quote, high doses that the participants were taking. In a medical setting, it's all about finding the proper dose that doesn't have negative effects. Just like swallowing a whole bottle of simple painkillers is dangerous, so is taking a whole gram of MDMA. But 
Medical professionals are finding that small doses can be beneficial for those who suffer from mental illness. Now, an extremely saddening story has been developing over the past several weeks. Uh, Universal Zulu Nation changes leadership after Africa Bambata allegations. This is courtesy of Rolling Stone by Daniel Krebs. The Universal Zulu Nation announced Friday that they have undergone extensive changes in their leadership. A month after its founder and hip-hop pioneer, Africa Bambata, was accused of sexually abusing a teenager in the early 80s. As part of this restructure, all accused parties and those accused of covering up the current allegations of child molestation have been removed and stepped down from their current positions, the Hip Hop Awareness Organization said in their statement Friday. Although the announcement did not mention Bambata by name, it did allude to his current situation. Quote, As an organization, we are in a very difficult position because we are being asked to condemn one of our founders based on testimony through social media alone. We cannot do this, the organization said. Following the Universal Zulu Nation's announcement Friday, Bambata's lawyer, Charles Tucker Jr., said in a statement to Rolling Stone, Bambata has not been part of the leadership for years. At the end of the day, we will still have unsubstantiated claims from alleged victims who have all seemed to be more focused on self-promotion, sensationalism, revenge, and some form of payment. There can't be a cover-up from acts that never occurred. The real tragedy is that this has drawn attention away from real victims who are abused every day in our country. There was never a pursuit for any kind of justice in this, and it stinks all the way around. The agendas of those involved are quite clear. Zulu Nation will continue to do the great work that they do, and Bambata will continue to work tirelessly, combating all forms of violence and giving a voice to those real victims of violence in communities across the nation, of whom many in the media seem to have forgotten about. Now, In April, a man named Ronald Savage claimed to the New York Daily News that at the age of 15, he was molested by Bambata while serving as a, quote, crate boy for the producer in the early 80s. Savage, who detailed the allegations in a recent memoir, also revealed to the newspaper that he was offered $50,000 by an unnamed member of the Zulu Nation to keep his claims against Bambata quiet. In a statement to Rolling Stone, Bambata called Savage's claim baseless and a, quote, cowardly attempt to tarnish my reputation and legacy. And here's the full quote. I, African Bambata, want to take this opportunity at the advice of my legal counsel to personally deny any and all allegations of any type of sexual molestation of anyone. These allegations are baseless and are a cowardly attempt to tarnish my reputation and legacy in hip-hop at this time. This negligent attack on my character will not stop me from continuing my battle and standing up against the violence in our communities, the violence in the nation, and the violence worldwide. In the ensuing weeks, three other people stepped forward alleging they were sexually abused by Bambata. Despite not outright condemning their founder, the Universal Zulu Nation organization didn't disregard those making the allegations against Bambata. Quote, We also cannot dismiss the comments of parties asserting that they've been harmed. We have a duty to search for truth. We also need to be mindful that if these allegations are true, that victims discussing this in a public forum has not come easily, they added. We, the Universal Zulu Nation, wish to extend a great sympathy to anyone affected by such issues. We know that respect and compassion need to be at the forefront of how we deal with such topics in the future. This has only been a lesson in learning for us. We are saddened by current events. Not only because of the trial by social media of which we have been subjected to as an organization, but because until now the previous leaders and founders have been ineffective at being able to respond in a way which our members and associates deserve of us. Staying within the realm of hip-hop in a slightly lighter story, DJ Cool Herc sues HBO over unauthorized portrayal on vinyl, which is the 
the show's celebration of New York's music scene. Rap pioneer Cool Herc is suing HBO's Vinyl for use of his name, voice, and likeness without permission. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Herc was offered $10,000 and consulting credits to waive his life rights, which he turned down. It's possible the offer could hinder HBO in court as it made Herc more aware of his legal options. It's beyond us why HBO and the producers of Vinyl, a successful show about artists and music, would hurt an artist like Herc who has, who has contributed so much to the music industry, says Herc's attorney. But a representative for HBO says we are confident there is no validity to the claims. But celebrating Herc's contributions to the genre haven't been all negative this year. Back in January, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio renamed a street in the Bronx that was the location of his 1973 back-to-school jam, a party long regarded as hip-hop's inception point, Hip Hope Boulevard. A quick announcement from a great website called PassionateDJ.com. Highly recommend you check that one out. Uh, pretty soon there will be a Tractor Control Hardware ultimate guide being released so for those of you who are familiar with my other ultimate guides like how to become a dj or uh, how to choose the best dj controller this is going to be a very tractor specific mega article all about control hardware so it'll give you comparisons and information and details about devices like the s8 the s5 the s4 mark ii the s2 and then all the modular controllers like the f1 x1 uh, the Z1 mixer, all that tractor control hardware. I'm going to go through and give you the basic details of what each piece of hardware is for, why you might choose one over the other one, some example setups, some specifications, all that kind of stuff, and links to reviews. That is a work in progress. That should be coming out within the next few weeks, so keep your eyes peeled. Back to DJ Tech Tools for some cool nerdy tech news. There's a Technics 1200 mod that's making the rounds that makes it a standalone DVS player. An intrepid YouTube user has rewired a set of Technics SL1200 turntables and added a built-in embedded system to play a library of tracks using control vinyl without an external DVS system like Serato or Tractor. It's a standalone self-contained piece of DJ gear, much like a CDJ, except that it's a Technics turntable. Here's a basic overview of the project. There's a couple of bullet points here, and I'll just go over them quickly. This is a DIY project, one-of-a-kind engineered by one person. It's a Technics SL1200 turntable that can play normal records. There's a second mode that allows it to play songs off a built-in computer's SD card. It has DVS timecode functionality, so scratching, spinbacks, pitch shifting, all work well. The controls used are only three buttons, start, stop, 33 and 45. No external connections are required. The audio coming out from the techniques is uh, directly from the unit itself, and you can set cue points and loops. There are a couple of demo videos that they post here, and you can see those on YouTube. But they're not exactly co cohesive or clear, and they're mostly in Russian. But in the original video description, uh, the author or the creator writes, handmade digital vinyl system built in to a vinyl turntable Technics 1200. It's like an analog Serato or tractor scratch, but it's completely autonomous. The computer and the sound card is not necessary. To work, you only need two turntables and a mixer. Content is stored on micro SD cards in the players. It's possible to install two hotkeys for each track with automatic saving on the SD card and install real-time loops. 
Now with this mod, there are a few different modes and menus. There's a normal mode, so if you just turn on the turntable normally, it would behave just as you would expect a Mark III 1200 turntable to act. Now if you hold down the 45 and 33 buttons while turning on the turntable, it jumps into DVS mode. In this mode, there are three different layers of functionality for those 45 and 33 buttons. And you can access those by holding down on the start-stop button, so kind of like holding a shift key down. You can do song browsing. You can jump forward and backward one track with a single tap, fast forward or rewind by holding, or hold one and tap the other to jump around in your SD card's folders. It has cue points. You can save and trigger two cue points. And then loops, which behave just like an old-school CDJ, which means it's loop in and loop out. So there's no real quantization or snap happening there, so you have to make sure your timing is spot on. At the base of the standalone DVS project is the uh, Xilink, I guess. It's X-I-L-I-N-K. It's like a little PCM, a little board. It's $45 on eBay. It's an embedded system that is designed for audio playback and manipulation. The project is based around using this board as the central brain, but it handles the playback manipulation that you would get from aggressive DJ use just fine and there are links to full documentation and a complete wiring diagram, which I will gladly link in the show notes, but again, it's all in Russian and pretty challenging to translate. So pretty neat mod for a pair of techniques. It would be cool to just be able to have that kind of timecode DVS functionality for MP3 files, but have no computer, no other external hardware involved, but the turntable itself. Uh, the only kind of annoying thing would be that you have to, I think, tear apart the turntable to put the SD card in, which for me would be a problem adding and removing tracks and organizing my crate all the time. Um, and also the lack of visual feedback might be a little difficult for people if you've got a whole you know complicated folder structure or something. Trying to just do that by uh, braille, I suppose, might prove difficult, but what a cool um, proof of concept this is and really done for very cheap. So it's pretty cool to see what people are doing. <laughs> Brand new techniques come out, cost $4,000, and meanwhile, this guy in Russia is tearing them apart and adding new functionality that uh, isn't even supported by the new models. So um, you will find a link to all this information, of course, in the show notes at passionatedj.com forward slash 44. Well, all right, folks. I'm fresh out of headlines. So that's about going to wrap it up for this episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and we will see you next week for episode 45. Trip and Tony will be back. And uh, don't forget to leave those voicemails. I crave your voicemails, so go ahead and go to PassionateDJ.com, click leave voicemail, leave a comment, leave a question, uh, whatever you want. Tell us you don't like us. Tell us we smell bad. Anything. I would love to hear from you guys. And this is also just to give you kind of an inside tip um, because it takes me so long for me to respond to your guys' emails and I realize that and that's something that I'm constantly working on and have been trying to get better at for all of Passionate DJ's life now. However, if you leave a voicemail, then that means that uh, it's a lot easier to get our attention because then we can not only can we reply to you directly, but we're also generating content for the show that you're listening to right now. So that helps us to help you and to help potentially anyone else who's listening to the podcast. So you might get a quick response out of it. So please, please, please leave those voicemails. We'd love to hear from you guys and take care. See you next week. Ciao.
Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ With Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning.